Welcome to Nutrition Without Compromise, a podcast brought to you by Orlo Nutrition. We believe that nutrition shouldn't be an either-or, that you should never have to sacrifice your morals for your health or that of our home planet. Join natural products veteran Karina Belizzi and experts from around the globe as they discuss healthy solutions that are better for you and better for the planet. Thanks for joining me today for another in-depth discussion around nutrition and health without compromise. Today, I'm going to be joined by a clinical herbalist and man on a mission, Ben Levine. Ben has always felt a profound connection with nature, a passion that led him to earn his Master of Science in Clinical Herbalism and accept a position as senior buyer of botanicals for that tea giant, Celestial Seasonings. Unfortunately, the more he learned about the inner workings of the commercial herb industry, the more jaded he became. So Ben set out to disrupt the system, and today he serves as a co-founder of Raza, stewarding the development of an ethically sourced herbal coffee alternative that's helped over 100,000 people connect with Mother Nature, live their values, and discover plant-powered energy. Ben, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me on, Karina. Well, I'm thrilled to have you here. And just reading your bio, <laughs> you gave me a thing or two to think about. We have some things in common. So I want to give you just a bit of context as we get started so we can dig deep into the issues that surround sustainability, resources, and a greater context. Sound good? Yeah, let's do it. Great. Okay. Well, I've personally also felt a profound connection with nature throughout my life. And I also started out in this natural products industry working in the world of herbs and herbal extracts. I started with a traditional Chinese herbal extract manufacturer, Draco Natural Products, and then worked in collaboration with big tea companies like Traditional Medicinals to help them build products that would help people's health. I learned to formulate with more than 100 herbs and really use that whole TCM to support people's health. I learned a lot along the way about how herbs are farmed in some cases wild crafted, but in others, let's just say less than ideal conditions. So <laughs> in the midst of this, I also became disillusioned because we saw serious problems erupting like doping controversies for herbal extract products, problems of drug companies kind of encroaching into the business and trying to regulate us out of having access to certain herbs. And ultimately, I made the choice to pivot to the world of omega-3s from fish. So over a decade, building Nordic Naturals to become the juggernaut they are today in omega-3s. I mean, I left them back in 2011. And what I would consider is doing my own sort of penance over the last few years, especially as I focus on algae as a source of omega-3s, because heck, we don't have to go to the fish. Our marine ecosystems are kind of, well, they're in incredible challenge right now. And with algae, we can get all that stuff without kind of negatively impacting the environment, produce oxygen as a byproduct and sequester carbon along the way. So I think we have a lot to talk about. <laughs> yeah. Certainly, right? So yep. let's start by really talking about those sorts of problems that are facing the herbal world. Mm. Why did you become disillusioned? What was your journey there? And why did you shift your focus therefore? Yeah, well, there's many reasons, but at the base layer, 
as an herbalist, when you're wildcrafting in the mountain, the Rocky Mountains here in Colorado or wherever you live, there's an encountering of the wild. There's a courtship of plants, an honoring of plants, and you build a relationship with these plants. And you contrast that to the herb industry as a whole, and you see almost none of that. There's a lot of shifting herbs into commodities. You know, I was buying 10 million pounds of botanicals a year. And I also had this one really stark contrast was this yellow dock plant outside Mm -hmm. of celestial seasonings on a bike path that I would go and sit with maybe two or three times a week on my lunch break and build a relationship with that plant. I was learning everything about yellow dock, its traditional uses, the chemistry behind how it works and building a relationship. And then I would go back inside and buy massive amounts of herbs that I had zero relationship with and didn't know that much about, didn't know like, okay, what are the sustainability issues? How are the farmers treated? And so a big part of my drive is to build that relationship, understand all the dynamics. Because when you start looking, you realize, well, A, anytime an herb gets popular that's wildcrafted, there's going to be issues. We see that in the adaptogen herb space. We're an adaptogenic coffee alternative. So we buy a lot of wild plants from China and from Russia, and there's serious problems there. Mm -hmm. And then on the flip side, you look at farming and are we moving more towards regenerative, building healthier soils, or are we just copying a monoculture, monocrop way of farming that is no better than corn? Well, one thing you allude to as you commence the story is the challenge that we all face in building and marketing products that consumers will use. And that has to do with the fact that the price squeeze tends to be on the bottom like we're working to build things that are affordable for people on a monthly, weekly, daily basis. And so when you're commoditizing something that's a natural resource, it's often you're paying less than the worth or the value of that actual material. And you're essentially, (laughs) the cost of it is human. So the person that's harvesting that is getting paid the very an unsustainable wage isn't able to afford healthcare or really take care of their family as well and things along those lines, or just living in conditions that are less than ideal. That's very, very common in the herbal world. It's something that Chris Killam, the medicine hunter, Mm -hmm. talks a lot about Mm -hmm. when he's out there in the world. I've interviewed him on my other podcast, Care More Be Better, and he'll come on here to talk about that very thing too. He just did a tour with KSM, which is an ingredient supplier from India, to the ashwagandha farms in India and showcased the beauty of the herb and also the work that KSM is doing to provide people with living wages and some of the other things that are doing to support the health of the populace there as well. So there are, I think, good, responsible companies out there, but sometimes you have to do a lot of legwork to learn about it. And so... How are you tackling that very human issue with Rasa so that you both have a sustainable crop that can continue with your product, but also that that human element is protected and cared for? Yeah. And it's funny you mentioned Chris, because I was just in India as well in March on ashwagandha fields. And I saw some of the photos he was posting and I was like, yeah, we were in different parts of India, but very similar. I mean, the first thing that I want to do is get my boots on the ground because suppliers will tell you a lot of things, but you don't really know what's going on there until you visit and you start to build a relationship and you 
go back and they start to see, okay, like these people are invested, they're curious, they want to help us build things. And also we're holding each other accountable. And the ashwagandha fields I was in, for instance, it was really cool to see. It's the perfect crop. It's a booming herb right now, an adaptogen. It's in almost all of our blends. And the crop couldn't be better for farmers. It's not only drought resistant, but it's drought loving. Like the less rainwater it gets, the better, the higher the withanolite content, the active mm-hmm. constituents. And so you can just broadcast seeds, doesn't need any fertilizer, doesn't need any water, doesn't have any pest pressure, and let those plants grow for six months and then harvest them. So it's mm-hmm. a quick turnaround. And I was looking at like a looking at the crops, looking at the farms, looking at the plants, and then talking with the farmer groups, understanding how they're supporting the laborers and our manufacturers supporting the farmer groups. And there's a lot of different certifications out there, Fair for Life. And that's one that you see a lot in the herb industry and that we're working on at RASA, working towards, because it's not pure commodities like fair trade often is. Fair trade's often coffee, bananas, tea, um, and Fair for Life is a little more integrative and able to work with a lot of the smaller crops like herbs. Well, and fair trade as an organization, I mean, I've seen chocolate companies that are working to really best the practices of fair trade. And so they don't bother with the certification because they feel like it's not stringent enough or that they're doing so much more to support the local economies of the people that they serve in Brazil or the farmers that they're working with there or in Africa too. And so I'm curious to see if you feel like these third-party certifiers are really doing what you think needs to be done? Or, I mean, are they reaching the consumer in a way that will help the consumer care more? Like what kind of effort are you seeing behind it in that stretch? Because Mm -hmm. I'll know also that there we're in process of developing kind of a regenerative agriculture certifying body, but there's nothing really set yet. And so I'm really, I'd just love to hear your perspective. I'm torn on certifications. The fair trade certifications in many ways feel like a shallow intermediary that replaces relationship. And if you can do direct trade and build real relationships with smallholders, that's usually much better. And fair trade got, you could argue it got co-opted a, a bit when they expanded it to plantations. Originally, fair trade was just coffee cooperatives. Mm-hmm. And it was a way to give cooperatives access to the broader market. So you have a co-op made of a bunch of two acre farmers that on their own could not compete with these massive coffee plantations. And so fair trade gave them access, but then the bigger players in the coffee market, Starbucks, et cetera, wanted access to fair trade because consumers were starting to see like, Oh, fair trade look, that makes me feel better about my purchase. And the U S fair trade USA opened it up to plantations, which kind of destroyed the whole co-op model in a lot of ways mm-hmm. and made the label much broader. And then you get into power dynamics, for instance, like you have your fair trade premium and you have a coalition of stakeholders, some farmers, some owners, some management, but the power dynamic is so intense that I saw this at a previous job in the tea industry. Often decisions get made that really benefit management, not Labors. Hmm. 
And, well, and yeah. I think we get kind of schooled to look for a specific seal. And we think that seal is going to embody something that relates to quality or guarantee in some way that the conditions were such that you'd be proud to buy that product. But I think speaking to your boots on the ground approach, what I've seen time and again, too, is that even in the organic food space, it makes sense to actually get boots on the ground, see what's actually happening. How is a product being farmed? Are they a no-till farming operation, mm-hmm. as a, for example, versus a tilling farming yeah. operation? I mean, we could yeah. talk for a long time about that particular subject mm-hmm. in regenerative agriculture, but it's something that Paul Hawken and his work also mentions time and again. It's important to get beat on the street, have a connection to food ensure that this is more relationship driven too, because when we do that, we tend to improve quality and we also tend to do things like pay a fair wage. I have an example in the coffee space, since you mentioned coffee that I'll just mention for people here. And that is Port of Mocha. They're led by Mokhtar Al-Hanchali and he is of Yemeni's origin. So he went to Yemen to bring their coffee here. And for those that don't know. I mean, you can get a pound of coffee for a couple bucks a pound, basically. And that's unprocessed and not taken care of. So he is paying something like triple that to the earners in the area that he's working with directly and bringing some of arguably the first coffee that ever really came from any spot in the world was in Yemen. Yemen or Egypt, I think one of those, right? So it's like, ultimately, (laughs) he's going to the space where coffee really originated, working with local people, making sure that they're able to thrive in their environment, that he's not ultimately pillaging the lowest ranks of society, and besting and so doing fair trade practices. So it's a very interesting model. He has to charge a lot for his coffee, a lot more than most people would be comfortable paying for their daily (laughs) regimen. So I just wonder, as we talk about that, as we think about things that might be superfluous, do you need coffee or tea to thrive? Probably not, maybe not, but Mm -hmm. you enjoy it and (laughs) it gives you other benefits. So let's dig into that and what specifically you're working to do with Rasa by offering something that is different, a coffee alternative, so to speak, and what that means to you and how you're actually formulating these products so that consumers can really enjoy something that is health promoting and also responsible at the social level. Yep. That's a good question. The idea behind making an adaptogenic coffee alternative really came from uh, the founder Lopa, who She just had her first kid. She was tired all the time. She tried coffee. It doesn't work for her. And she had a mom's group that coffee wasn't really working for them either. You dig yourself into a hole. And she was looking around at coffee alternatives in the market and didn't find anything that was really functional and thought like, yeah, I'll make my own. And we add a lot of adaptogens in because coffee is a daily ritual for a vast majority of Americans. And When you make something in capsule form, sometimes you forget to take it unless you really get into a routine, but you never forget to drink your cup of coffee in the morning. It's like this entrained ritual. The ritual, yes. Yeah. And there are a lot of people looking to ease off coffee for health reasons, for anxiety, for stress reasons, for lack of a good night of sleep. And we want to offer these stress 
busting adaptogens in place of coffee or as your second or third cup. Like a lot of people like love coffee and it does provide a lot of antioxidants and it's great if we also get the second or third cup. But the real angle we're going after with Rasa is stress. Like stress is this massive chronic foundational issue in our society. When you look at a lot of the chronic diseases out there, a lot of the issues we have, you can link almost all of them back to stress. Yep. We're never in our evolutionary back history. Asleep, stress. Yeah. I mean, those two are also tied closely together. And with excess stress, lack of sleep, then suddenly you also have a cascade of health issues that can erupt from that. So I'm 100% agree with you. And I'm also a big fan of hot liquids. So I almost always have a coffee or tea in my hands as I'm recording podcasts <laughs> or just at my daily work at my computer and really find that it's additive for me, like more than water is mm-hmm. as an example. And I also find that when I'm really good about taking my adaptogenic herbs like ashwagandha and other things, I actually have a tea that I make from astragalus and lychee berry. I just basically Mm. boil water and put those in it and I let them float around in it for a while and just drink it and then chew on the goji berries and stuff like that. But I'm (laughs) a little bit of a nerd when it comes to herbs. So (laughs) this is a relic of my early days working in this industry and learning about health and nutrition. I do find when I miss that, when I don't take those adaptogens like the rhodiolas or the Siberian ginsengs or the astragalus, or as we were talking about earlier, ashwagandha, incredible adaptogenic, that my stress levels go up, that I don't sleep as well. And it's a simple fix. So I wonder what you're most excited about in this world of adaptogens from a research perspective, like what's really getting your clinical herbalist um, (laughs) juices flowing. I've been on a mission to understand how adaptogens work. Like you do Google around so many articles about adaptogens. They're really trending right now. But most of the time they just say adaptogens help you adapt to stress. But like, why? How? And that's what I've been really fascinated by. Like, how are these herbs working in our bodies that have such profound effects? Ashwagandha has been shown to lower cortisol levels and profoundly help with sleep and also performance and endurance. Um, it's, it's kind Increased of muscle mass. Yeah. I mean, that's kind of incredible. Like that was a surprise for me, right? So tennis stars are now adding ashwagandha to their regimens because it's been shown to increase your lean muscle mass. And lean muscle mass is also bone protective. So it's anti-aging because then if you take an adaptogen like that on a routine basis, then you're going to see health benefits that cascade from the stress reduction to better muscle mass on down the line. I mean, it will improve your body's ability to hydrate. I mean, there's so many things that adaptogens do that I'm just like, my mind is blown whenever I look at the research. So I just wanted to know what your mind blown moment is in that space. Yeah, there's been so many, but one is that we have these plants, adaptogens, that are across cultures. You see them in Ayurveda in India as the Rasayanas or the rejuvenative tonics. You see them in traditional Chinese medicine, often as the Qi tonics. And it turns out that these plants share chemistry very often. Most adaptogens have what's called triterpenoid saponins. Mm -hmm. And the mind-blowing moment was when I read some research that these look almost identical to cortisol. Mm -hmm. So these plants have compounds that look very similar to cortisol. 
but don't bind to those receptors nearly as strongly. They act as partial agonists. So they're able to modulate those receptors in a way that helps us be in balance. If we have too much cortisol for a chronically elevated stress, adaptogens can help lower that cortisol back into a healthy range. And if Mm -hmm. we're on the flip side, if we're exhausted, we're burnt out, adaptogens can come in because they look like cortisol in a weaker way. But if you are really low on cortisol, they can give you that boost to build back better habits. Hmm. So I travel to Colorado where you're based on a fairly routine basis because I have family there and living at something like 10,000 feet elevation. And I'm in Santa Cruz, California, which is at sea level, right? And so I used to have a little issue with just getting kind of low-grade headaches, dehydration, because it's much less moist there in general. So I have to drink more water, but basically low-grade altitude sickness. My dad gets it much worse, but I tend to be okay. I mean, granted, I'll get winded hiking those hills because we're talking a 10,000 foot elevation difference from where I live to where we go up in above Woodland Park. So they're in Divide, which is another couple thousand elevation above Woodland Park is known as the city above the clouds. And so (laughs) it's pretty high up there. So I started to actually take adaptogenic herbs with me. And now I actually just keep some at my dad's cabin. And I notice that I never get a headache anymore when I go, like never, it doesn't happen. And I also don't feel as parched. And so this has to do with the adaptogen's ability to somehow just increase. I think it relates to your muscles. And this is speculation because if your muscles are able to have more mass, like if it's protecting your muscles in some way, your ability to build muscles, and then you understand that 60% of your muscle weight is water then I think you're just more effectively carrying water in your muscles. I can't prove it, but it's what (laughs) I suspect is actually happening. And that's kind of the wonder or the mystery behind how some of these herbs work. But I think this also gets to the heart of why plant-based nutrition is so important and having a varied diet is so important. And then looking at some of these herbs as kind of this gift from the gods, so to speak, because they're here on this mortal coil with us and we evolved consuming them in some way, all sorts of different plants to treat ailments and have passed on this generational knowledge from one group of people to the next. And that information has traveled across countries and across worlds. It's amazing the body of knowledge that we have, and yet so much that we still don't know. (laughs) I don't know if that's a comment or a question, but I just love to hear. (laughs) I have a couple things popped into my head while you're talking the altitude is really true and there is some research around rhodiola potentially helping get more oxygen to the brain Mm -hmm. and rhodiola eleuthero cordyceps like these three adaptogens are well known for helping folks adjust at high altitude and you look at where they grow and they grow extremely high i was in china three years ago up in northeast china almost at russia in the Chiang Bai Shan, the Everwhite Mountains that have snow year-round pretty much. And that's where rhodiola and eleuthero grow. And so they're super high up and they're getting a lot of the pressures from living in such an intense place. It's very mm-hmm. cold. You have a lot more exposure to radiation. You have a lot less oxygen. And then we can kind of take these compounds that these plants are building for themselves. They're like, oh, we don't have enough oxygen. We're going to have compounds that help with that. And we can kind of co-opt these compounds for ourselves, which is really fascinating. 
And you look wow. at adaptogens and they often live in extreme places, either super high up or like ashwagandha, super low, hot, no water. <laughs> like it's a different opposite kind of extreme. Yeah. And thankfully um, there are vegetarian cordyceps available now, right? You don't have to get this stuff. Yes. Almost no one should be using wild cordyceps. It's the lab grown fruiting bodies are awesome. Just as and, effective. Yeah. Yep, yep. <laughs> I think they grow the, it on rice now. So. Yep. Yeah. The second thought I had when you were talking about our evolutionary exposure to plants is this great book about nature deficit disorder. And he's talking a lot about like, we don't get enough nature. We're not out in nature enough, but just the same. We also don't eat enough nature. Our phytochemical diversity in our diet is a very small fraction of what it used to be. You know, we used to eat a hundred different plants a month and now we eat like 10. Right, because you'll, you'll just get your wheat. mixed greens <laughs> yeah. and green yeah. beans. And I mean, for us, we do a lot of green beans and Brussels sprouts because I'm sensitive to broccoli. I can't have broccoli or mm. broccoli cultivar. So we go to other crucifers and get the things that we can get our kids to eat. Like they like green beans and they've learned to like Brussels sprouts, which I think is probably pretty good for four and seven-year-old. Yeah. But <laughs> generally speaking, that we're just used to getting the same basic foods and then you develop your diet around them, you develop your habits around them. So we get back to this whole concept of habits and what habits do you have? One of the things I encourage people to do and one that I'm working to do myself is do more of my shopping at farmer's markets because it's both locally grown and supporting local economies. It's creating more of that circular economy its packaging is much reduced because I'm really working to get plastics out of the household as much as possible. I can often get berries that way that aren't in a plastic mm. container. As an example, I can often get different mushrooms that I might see at the grocery store and things along those lines. So I'm just getting a different or broader variety of produce that is available in my local community versus what's just available at the Safeway or the Rayleigh's or the Whole Foods Market or the natural health food store even. So it's just something that I think we need to integrate with and get comfortable with. We try different foods, expand your repertoire of the foods that we eat. In an earlier episode, we connected with Dr. William Lee, who wrote a book called Eat to Beat Disease. And I look at that book as kind of a great arsenal to get you thinking about the foods that you might like to enjoy, but also those that attack different systems within your body so that you can create your best health. And you'll see a ton of herbs listed in there too. Like things like ginger that you might not consider that you can buy at almost any grocery store and grate and then cook with or turmeric even, which you often can also buy at a grocery store and add to your culinary delights and ultimately create a better tasting palette of food and also one that's more varied so that your health is of its best possible existence. So you can live and enjoy the things that you love. I hmm. love that. At any rate. So I have a question for you that relates to coffee and water use versus herbs, because you're looking to actually really bring to market smattering of herbs as a coffee replacement to change our habits. And one of the things that we should and could continue to be concerned with is things like 
how we're using water and not necessarily in the beverage itself, but in the growing of all these herbs versus mm. coffee. Do you know anything about what it takes to grow coffee on a bushel basis versus the herbs that you're formulating with? And how does it compare for a land and water use? Yeah, that's a really good question. And one that I want to do way more research on. I do know that coffee on the list of foods that impact our climate, beef, obviously number one, coffee is number six. And that's because there is a lot of monocropped sun-grown coffee. It's just rows of coffee. They tear down the Amazon or we're in Nicaragua or wherever. They raise the forest. They monocrop coffee, full sun, a lot of pesticides, a lot of fertilizer. That's horrible. But there are a lot of folks that are doing a lot more shade-grown coffee, a lot more intercropping where you have spices mixed in. Doselva is a company in Nicaragua that's doing this. They're now growing turmeric and ginger, and they're mixing it in with the coffee, which is also agroforested, ideally. And so there's natural shade cover. Um, so there's better ways to do it, but the bad ways are still prevalent because it's cheaper and quicker. Dominant. And more yeah, short term. Way, way cheaper. Yep. In the herb industry, the herbs we work with, we're trying to understand like how can we be on the best side of the spectrum. And I'll talk about India again. One of the things I was doing there was just looking at all of the different programs they have and seeing where we fit in, where we can support them. And it was really mind-blowing. It was awesome to see, for instance, they have this traditional compost tea called Jivamrutha, which means mm. nectar of life. And it's the indigenous cow dung and urine in a barrel mixed with lentil flour a handful of soil and jaggery or raw sugar. And you add a bunch of water to that and it ferments and it becomes this like really microbe rich brew that you then give to your soil that drastically improves the soil. We saw a lot of rainwater catchment systems, big pits or buns or ditches, because one of the big issues, you mentioned water, one of the big issues in Southern India is the topsoil's gone and the monsoons never make it to the aquifer. It mm-hmm. rains so much in a little amount of time and it all washes away. Yeah. When you get your water all at once, it's like a desert condition in that way, right? Because exactly. They get yeah, your yeah. water all at once. Mm-hmm. Yep. So you have to figure out ways to capture that water and let it sink into the aquifer. And they're doing studies on the aquifer level and it's raising after the last decade of doing these practices. So wow. um, trying to figure out, okay, these farmers are doing incredible work. How do we grow that? How do we scale it? How do we amplify it? Yeah. How do we make our business more pro-planet? Yeah. Exactly. And just seeing one model farmer in a village who's more regenerative, intercropping, green manuring, and seeing how his soil has improved so much, which means his yield improves, which means his profit improves. And then you have all these other farmers in the village coming around saying, hey, like I noticed your soil, your yield, and now your profit are all better than mine. Like, can you show me what you're doing? And then you start seeing other rainwater catchment pits or ponds popping up and these practices slowly start to spread. Yeah. I think that story is one that we need to hear more of. On Netflix, you can watch the film called Kiss the Ground. I think it's available a number of other places as well, where they actually show stories of that happening even here in the United States, where farmers have been able to handle drought by not just focusing on crop rotation, but no tillage, 
and ultimately shifting to a more regenerative growing process and then working to share those stories with their local communities. You can see the farm that is growing regeneratively has healthy crops and then literally across the aisle there's a dustbin because they weren't able to successfully grow their crops due to water issues that they encountered. And so I think these are the important stories that we need to learn more about, lean into, discover, and ultimately I appreciate that what you're doing with Rasa is working to get the feet on the ground, to have those relationships and ultimately build a better future. So kudos to you. I've really enjoyed this discussion today. And so I'd like to ask you at this point, if there's a particular thought that you'd like to leave our audience with, and if you have a question that you feel like wasn't asked that you wish had been, you could ask and answer that as well. Great. We as consumers often have a lot of herbs in our life, whether it's a tea bag, it's coffee, which is it's also an herb, whether it's a tincture during allergy season, whether it's a coffee alternative. But one thing I always encourage folks to hear so much about the food industry and how the system is broken, but it's just overwhelming and depressing without like one small action step. Um, so I always say, pick one plant, whether you really like chamomile in the evening or you have a tincture of rhodiola at your dad's cabin in Colorado, pick one herb and try and learn everything you can about it. Ask all the companies, all the questions, see how they respond, which will give you a good idea into the integrity of that company. See what's available online, look into the research and understand like if I'm going to continue to buy this, should I shift my buying habits? Should I try and buy it local? Should I try and buy it from this country? Should I buy it from this farmer cooperative? And just having one little shift in one plant that you consume will provide that model of the one villager that we can then continue to expand upon. But doing it once is huge. Yeah. Well, that speaks to knowing your source and developing a relationship with brands that you know you can trust. And so I think it's important just to to leave as a message for everyone here, you know, just going to amazon.com and buying what's ever cheapest in a category isn't necessarily going to support uh, these regenerative systems. In fact, it might be the direct opposite of that. And so if we consider as consumers what our footprints are, it's helpful to think these things through and to really know your source, especially when it comes to things that are additive, like tea, coffee, supplements, things that you don't require to live, so to speak. So it's, I think, very, very important to think about source and where our food comes from, where the things that we consume and put into our bodies come from. So that's a beautiful thought. And thank you so much, Ben. Yep. And I do have a discount code for anyone who wants to give Rasa a try. WeAreRasa.com or WeAreRasa and all the socials and Nutrition15, Nutrition all caps, 1-5 for... 15% 15% off. That's great. Thank you so much, Ben, for that. And thank you for joining me on this discussion today on Nutrition Without Compromise. Thanks for having me, Karina. Thank you for joining me today on Nutrition Without Compromise. To learn more about Ben Levine and Rasa, visit wearerasa.com. That's wearerasa, R-A-S-A.com. You can follow them in social spaces at wearerasa. Links to all of their social profiles and more will be available in our show notes wherever you listen to this podcast. 
For full transcripts and additional insights, visit our podcast and blog page at orlonutrition.com. If you enjoyed our discussion today, be sure to subscribe to the show so you are alerted when new episodes drop. Thank you for joining us today. Here's to your health. Thanks for listening to Nutrition Without Compromise. To make sure you never miss an episode, subscribe, rate, and review wherever you listen to podcasts. If you'd like to learn more, visit orlonutrition.com and join our mailing list. You'll gain access to complete show notes, features, and informative blogs because nutrition shouldn't be an either or.